Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm great, Anne. How are you? Good, good. So I'm excited to talk about research today with you. Yes. What have you brought to talk to me about? So the first article I want to talk about is entitled The Effect of Breastfeeding During Infancy on Arterial Stiffness in Young Adults. And this was done by a group of cardiologists at a university in Turkey, uh, just published in uh, Minerva Medica in 2006. Actually, I guess it was, no, it was just published in 2022. So this is uh, this is a study where the researchers were interested in evaluating arterial stiffness in young adults who had no other heart risk factors. So um, first of all, just to say that there is already a pretty good body of evidence that breastfeeding lowers blood pressure in toddlers, adolescents, and adulthood. And so, um, but then there's the mechanism of like, why does that happen? So these authors state that there's really no evidence of how breastfeeding affects atherosclerosis, which is, you know, the buildup of plaque in the arteries. Um, and we know that that may, you know, have an effect on blood pressure. But um, anyway, they say that an indirect measure of early atherosclerosis is arterial stiffness. And so they took two groups of subjects between the ages of 18 and 32, and all of the people who they recruited worked at the hospital. So they were either doctors, nurses, medical students, um, or other staff. And uh, maybe it's because it was a pandemic, like those were the people around or something. Uh, so they had 46 subjects in group one, and these people were breastfed as children exclusively for four to six months. And the way they know this about the breastfeeding history is they actually called the parents um, of these individuals and found out from the parents how long they actually breastfed. So uh, the first group, 46, um, group one, they breastfed exclusively for four to six months. And then the other group was 40 people and they breastfed for less than three months or they never exclusively breastfed. The, they evaluated all the subjects to make sure that they did not have any other um, risk factors for heart disease. So they were eliminated from the trial if they were smokers, if they had a family history of heart disease, high cholesterol, diabetes, lung disease, or something similar, like terribly high, like, uh, yeah, any, anything like that. Um, they, everyone had a heart echocardiogram to make sure their hearts looked fine, which I thought was really interesting. And so they used a measure uh, called aortic pulse wave velocity uh, and this allowed them to determine that the exclusively breastfed group actually had less aortic stiffness than the non-exclusively breastfed group. So it was really clinically significant, uh, the difference in stiffness um, in these individuals. And, uh, you know, again, this is like one of those biologic plausibility measures where we know that there seems to be a difference 
again, the risk of stroke and heart attack and other vascular diseases among children who have, who have been breastfed. And in addition, we see this among those who were the breast, who were the lactators. Um, so anyway, we'll, I'll talk about that in a moment, but anyway, this is just a very exciting measure to help us understand why there is this different in vascular outcomes among uh, people who were breastfed. But I also want to mention in relation to this, again, is that people, women who breastfeed um, also seem to have a lower risk of vascular disease. And I want to just bring up a study that was published last year that was a 2021 uh, systematic review and a meta-analysis of research that was on carotid intima media thickness which um, in, in relation to the duration of breastfeeding as a mother. So the carotid intima media is the inner lining of the um, carotid artery. And we think it's different than actually having atherosclerosis. It's different than having um, like buildup in the artery. What they're measuring is actually the thickness of the wall of the carotid artery. And this is a way that uh, one can sort of age blood vessels. For a while, clinically, we were using this kind of measurement um, in practice, actually. So like if people had really high cholesterols and we weren't sure like what is their true risk of heart disease, um, we would actually do um, this vascular study that looked at the carotid intima media thickness until insurance has stopped paying for it. But we could actually say, gosh, you know, your arteries look like you're a 75 year old, whereas you're really only 50. And so it has been used clinically, you know, and, and maybe it is still in some places where insurances pay for it. But anyway, they did this um, among women who, are, who have a history of breastfeeding. And um, so basically what happens is that the thicker the carotid, the thicker the, the carotid intima media is, the stiffer the artery, the more prone those arteries are to blood clots and narrowing, which can increase the risk of strokes and heart attacks. So this systematic review included um, 1,721 women who were between the ages of 36 and 55 years of age. And they compared those who breastfed for more than six months versus those who breastfed anywhere from one to five months. And they found that the women who were in the longer breastfeeding group, they actually ended up having lower carotid intima media thickness compared to those who breastfed for a shorter time. Um, in addition, they found that this group um, who breastfed longer had higher HDL cholesterols, which is the good protective cholesterol. So um, I'm just fascinated by this research because I think it's, you know, we know that heart disease um, and vascular diseases are our number one cause of death and mortality, at least in the United States. And so increasing breastfeeding rates should help to, to change that. Well, and there was a huge meta-analysis that just came out in January of 2022 that was on the reduced maternal cardiovascular risk associated with breastfeeding. And it was just amazing to see the percentage decreased risk of stroke in people who had done any breastfeeding. And so I yes. think that's something that I, I recently tossed into a PowerPoint I was doing for uh, our leadership on why our program is important and it's not just the, the cuddly uh, bonding of breastfeeding that we're all going after here. 
Right, right. And you know, as if it's, um, as if it's, you know, not enough that breastfeeding reduces, you know, improves health equity, helps to reduce infant mortality and infant morbidity, as Dr. Ware and her team from the CDC showed, you know, just back in November. But um, I think that, uh, you know, we know that stroke and heart disease is a significant uh, health equity issue as well for black women versus white women, right? And so this, this is important in order to, um, to help fund breastfeeding medicine programs, right? To help women of color, poor women. We know that poverty is associated with higher risk of heart disease. So this is really a way to level the playing field. And um, actually what we have done recently is we've looked at our breastfeeding medicine clinic to see if our patient population uh, actually reflects the community. And um, by doing this, we're hoping to show that we need more funding for a breastfeeding medicine clinic in order to, to meet the needs of our community, especially people of color who are socioeconomically disadvantaged um, in order to actually help our community to improve health equity. So um, people should pay attention to this and use this information to help um, fund uh, breastfeeding support. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, when I first started my clinic, I think because of the fact that most of my patients were finding out about me from their obstetricians, I had sort of a skewed demographic in my clinic. And as I've gotten more well-known, I've had these really interesting periods where, because we have a super diverse um, population here, I'll see a patient I had a patient, I don't know, a few weeks ago that was from Nepal. And then the next thing you know, I've got this sort of steady trickle of patients who are coming to see me who are, you know, from that community now that they know I exist. And so clearly there needs to be more bandwidth for us to be able to serve all these different patients because we're always trying to fit in more people. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, yeah. We could talk forever about access to breastfeeding medicine clinics. I mean, that's a whole, gosh, that's a whole other ball of wax. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Yeah. So what do you have? So I just wanted to um, talk about this quick um, article that came out in March in Breastfeeding Medicine, um, and it is the impact of wearable breast pumps on physicians' breastfeeding experience and success um, by Cobinson, Hoff, Olson, and Ducharme Smith. And the authors note that physician mothers, as we know, face many barriers in their ability to meet their lactation goals. This is often due to short maternity leaves and their busy and flexible work schedules. Um, and so they aim to characterize the effect of using wireless wearable pumps like the Freemie, LV, and Willow in the workplace to determine if those devices may help overcome barriers to breastfeeding success for physician mothers. They used a cross-sectional survey distributed to female physicians and trainees um, identified through the Facebook group, Dr. Doctor Mothers Interested in Lactation Knowledge, known as Dr. Milk, through an anonymous Qualtrics survey on their um, site. And the participants were analyzed in two groups, those who had used wearable pumps versus those who had only used traditional electric breast pumps. They had 542 respondents. And of those, 59% had used a wearable pump in the workplace and 41% had only used a traditional breast pump. Those who had used wearable pump reported statistically significant 
shorter lactation breaks and were more likely to be able to provide breast milk to their infants for their entire intended duration compared to traditional pump users. However, the ability to pump as often as needed while at work and the frequency of lactation breaks throughout the day were not significantly different when you looked at the groups. Um, however, later in the discussion, the authors note that between the wearable and the traditional pump groups, the ability to pump as often as needed while at work and the reported frequency weren't reported as significant. However, the group, the people who were in the wearable pump group reported a perceived ability to pump more frequently throughout the day compared to their own personal experience using traditional pumps. And I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, they had done some previous work showing that there were benefits to these. And I think it's, I'm, I'm starting to believe the hype. Yes, yes. No, I, I do think it just makes total sense. When you think about it, doesn't it just make sense that they would just be in the bra and just pumping? I mean, it's such a, it's such a leash and such a chain for people. They feel chained down to the wall. You know, I hear this so much from, from patients. Um, the wearable pumps, um, it's really nice that many of them are quiet. Some of them are not very quiet, but um, there is a concern among many women that they don't, that, that they don't seem to um, empty as well. Uh, and so actually IABLE uh, is, has a pump survey. We have a pump committee actually, and we, we did a survey, which is still being refined and we're gonna put out the survey again. Our first survey went out in September of 2021. Um, and we had about a thousand respondents and we asked people to rate their breast pump, if they've used a pump in the last two years, to rate their pump um, in many different ways. And what we found is that for the question of, does your pump work well? Do you feel like your pump you know, empties you well? The LV and the Willow actually scored lower than the other pumps. And I've heard this, and you may have heard it too from your patient. So it is a concern, and it probably depends on fit. I think that there's a difference in how the flange fits. Like I usually find that a 24 in a willow and an LV is maybe more like a 21 in one of the other uh, pumps, you know, like a Spectra or Medela. I've noticed that. Um, and so I think uh, these pumps are only going to get better. It's nice that they're quiet, like I said before. There, it just makes a whole lot more sense, especially for our nurse practitioners and PAs who tend not to have offices, but they have cubicles and they want to be able to pump, you know, in semi-privacy without having to, you know, go to a separate room, which may be um, many minutes away. So um, we're definitely getting there, definitely getting there to improve the situation of uh, pumping. But I think one of the things that has come up, and I think this was discussed on the area of a listserv, is this issue of policy and so is it okay for someone to be pumping in an exam room at the bedside with a wearable pump and because policies uh really don't sort of address this right so that's a whole nother like the wild wild west of pump use at work <laughs> yeah there certainly have been some people who have been given a hard time about doing this i think it's a bit ridiculous but 
you know, I get these questions all the time and I'm sure you do too, for my patients, what's the best pump or right. is it worth spending the money for one of these versus another? And, you know, sometimes it's people like this who are in the workplace and sometimes it's the exclusively pumping mom at home. Who's got older kids who cannot be chained down. I mean, that is a difficult situation to be in. And like with all pumps, it, there isn't a one best one. It depends on the individual and how things fit. Just like, you know, people like different, not just sizes of flange, but also the, their styles, um, you know, some that are more cornucopia shaped versus the step off. Um, and I think it's really hard. We've talked about this a lot before to uh, make a recommendation and also to sometimes find the right fit for people because there's so many differences in anatomy. It's not just the size and the shape, it's the amount of stretchiness and what is the you know density of the tissue behind. And so I think it's also really hard because so often people come in and they say, oh, you know, this person says, turn the pump up all the way to the max. And this person says, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I find that there are people who have significant trauma and swelling of their nipples that is impacting their flow. And they're always told, oh, if you have a hospital grade pump, you need a stronger pump. That's going to make things better. But because they don't come with great directions and people don't understand how to use them, people end up going off on these, you know, roads that our dead ends. I had a lady today and she was, she's got a lot of milk and she's been doing a lot of pumping. And we were discussing like, how long should she pump for? And finally I said something which was like, well, if it takes you 10 minutes to pump two ounces and it takes you 30 minutes to get the third ounce, stop after the two ounces. It's just that law of diminishing returns. And she and her husband were like, oh, that is exactly it. Okay. We can figure it out now. Right, especially when we don't know if leaving behind an ounce is really going to be, you know, provide like any kind of feedback inhibition. It probably won't. Well, it depends on yeah. the patient, right? The exactly. people that have got plenty of milk, their bodies don't care. Right. Some people, it makes a difference. And that's why we need really smart clinicians to help people if they're not doing great. Yeah. Yeah, I really feel that, uh, you know, I think all clinicians, all, you know, lactation consultants and breastfeed medicine specialists really need to um, spend time with people, bring the baby and bring the pump, especially in this country. And I'm sure in other countries, it's not nearly the case without this extra pumping. But I would add too, you know, in what you were saying about, well, this whole study about how this, uh, these wearable pumps are really helpful for healthcare providers, these physicians, I would say for those who are at home who have babies who are not great at extracting, you know, they're just not quite, I always say not quite ready for prime time at the breast to be the extractors. These wearable pumps are life-saving, especially, especially during the pandemic when there wasn't a lot of help at home, but there still isn't, um, and the partners are gone and they're by themselves and to try to do everything is just very, very difficult. So I have been finding that people I'm more willing to continue to express milk and support their infants with breast milk uh, by using a wearable pump. Yeah. All right. Good topic. Uh, so I'm going to end this podcast with a topic 
and snoring. So don't fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so this was a study called um, Breastfeeding and Sleep Disordered Breathing in Children, Systematic Review and Proposal of Underlying inter Interaction uh, Models. So this was, a, this was a study that was done among a group of dentists, one who is at the University of Kentucky and the rest from Italy. And um, I was interested in this because I've always, oh, I should say this was published in the European Journal of Pediatric Dentistry in um, February of 2022. So, you know, I've been really interested in this whole issue of snoring because we think about the tonsils and the adenoids um, as being, well, they are, you know, lymph tissue, right? And they respond to viruses and you think, gosh, if a child is breastfed, perhaps they won't have as big of tonsils and adenoids, which seem to be one of the major reasons why kids snore, right? And there have been some periodic studies out there that I've seen come up, you know, come across at various times demonstrating that breastfed children have fewer problems with snoring. Um, but this is, I think, the first time I've seen a systematic review on this relationship between sleep disordered breathing and, um, and breastfeeding. So first, I just want to define sleep disordered breathing. So this is considered a spectrum anywhere from snoring to having upper airway resistance syndrome, which is a term that I don't really use much in clinical practice, to obstructive sleep apnea, where there's like, you know, changes where you know the children are not breathing and then they kind of gasp and they wake up. Um, and uh, the researchers say that diagnosing pediatric sleep apnea is different than diagnosing it in adults. And so there's a pretty low bar. Um, so with adults, we tolerate a certain amount of apnea, but not in children. So in children, only one episode of apnea or hypopnea, which is just like insufficient depth of breathing, um, per hour, only one episode per hour is considered positive for diagnosing pediatric obstructive sleep apnea. But other signs of obstructive sleep apnea can include just generally snoring, labored breathing during sleep, gasping and snorting. So that I always call it the Yogi Bear phenomenon. I don't know if you remember Yogi Bear, but you know, Yogi Bear is lying on, is lying on his back. And then he's snoring, and I always demonstrate this to the kid, to the kids in my practice. I, I go, and then there's no breathing, and then, and Yogi Bear wakes up, and he's like, ah! And so I, I don't know if people, that was fabulous. <laughs> and I don't know if people realize that Yogi Bear has sleep apnea, but he does, and so it's something that I watched for years um, as a kid on TV. You know that he did this. Um, but anyway, so that's, you know, the gasping and the snorting. Bedwetting is considered to be a sign of um, obstructive sleep apnea. And then daytime symptoms like headache, really falling asleep during the day, like sitting on the couch and falling asleep, falling asleep while they're doing homework, things like that. And then just trouble concentrating, which I think is interesting. You know, I, I mean, I think about those things and I think, gosh, you know, we should really ask um, all the kids who we diagnose with ADD, like, how do you sleep? I know you're a restless sleeper um, to, you know, to sort of investigate whether or not obstructive sleep apnea could underlie that. Generally, uh, what they have quoted is that obstructive sleep apnea typically happens in children between the ages of two and eight with a prevalence as high uh, as one to 6% of all children. Obesity is a major risk factor as are enlarged tonsils and adenoids 
And for the most part, like if I have a child in my practice who's been snoring and there's concern about apnea and they undergo a sleep study, they just basically undergo a tonsillectomy and an androidectomy. That's kind of the, the treatment. Um, in addition to uh, obesity and enlarged tonsils and adenoids, allergies can also cause obstructive sleep apnea because of nasal congestion. And also having malocclusion or maxillofacial abnormalities can increase the risk of, of apnea. So this study was done to look at whether breastfeeding prevents obstructive sleep apnea. So they found 15 studies that were eligible by their criteria. Um, and their criteria basically were uh, that the study would evaluate the association between breastfeeding and sleep disordered breathing and the various different types of sleep disordered breathing. But in these studies, there was some variability in terms of the definition of breastfeeding. Um, some looked at just any breastfeeding, others looked at exclusive breastfeeding, and some looked at just breastfeeding for one month, others looked for six months, etc. But the bottom line is that they did find that longer, a longer duration of exclusive breastfeeding had increasing protection from habitual snoring. Um, and also breastfeeding was found to be protective of obstructive sleep apnea. And there was a dose response relationship so that the longer children are breastfed, the, less, the lower risk of obstructive sleep apnea. So the question is why? And so the authors did have a couple theories. One is they, they said, you know, that breastfeeding is like more of a workout. Like, you know, it's like weightlifting. It's like, you know, you're, it's like digging the trench, like really working hard to extract that milk versus the passive suckling that a baby needs to do on a bottle. Um, so there's, um, you know, the, the vacuum that's generated when suckling at the breast is much higher than having to extract milk from a bottle, especially if that bottle flows really easily. And so this basically leads to different uh, facial muscle development. In addition, um, the literature, you know, we, we know that literature indicates that the, the longer breastfeeding is protective against malocclusions. So when you look at like the orthodontia literature, uh, babies who've been breastfed tend to need less intervention in terms of orthodontia. Um, and then and then there is this question of like early respiratory viral exposures and how that plays a role in the size of the tonsils and adenoids and how breastfeeding may moderate that um, inflammatory response to viruses. And they sort of implied that um, there are, there's like a, neuro, a neurologic response to how the body, how, when, when these infants are faced with respiratory viruses and then there's this patterned response that continues and continues over time, every time there's a virus, and you and I have both seen this, right? Like kids, whenever they get a virus, their tonsils are huge and they have trouble sleeping and they're snoring and then they're about to get their tonsils out, but then the cold goes away and they're no longer snoring and the parents are like, no, 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 we don't have to have the tonsils taken out. And the question is whether if a child is breastfeeding, whether they don't end up in that same pattern of having that tonsillar hypertrophy and adenoidal hypertrophy every time they have a cold. So like when I think about ear infections, for example, we know, I mean, the evidence is like more, couldn't be clearer, right? That children have fewer ear infections when they're breastfed. I oftentimes think about that as being due to regurgitating the bioactive factors of breast milk into the eustachian tubes 
to actually provide that mucosal protection from germs getting into the middle ear. But the question is, is it also just the size of the adenoids? Because the adenoids surround the eustachian tube, right? And uh, cause the obstruction that will lead to that chronic fluid in the middle ear. And so um, perhaps is that moderation of that adenoid tissue that plays more of a role than the mucosal protection. So it's very interesting, but uh, so those are just uh, their theories. Yeah. That is very fascinating. Yeah. And so, you know, sometimes when I read this literature, I feel like it almost changes like my clinical decision making. So one of my friends uh, exclusively breastfed her you know, child for more than a year and was still breastfeeding her child at um, like 15 or 18 months when the child had like huge amount, just huge tonsillar hypertrophy and needed to have sort of an urgent tonsillectomy. And I'm like, no, that can't be it, because you're breastfeeding. <laughs> and then you realize, oh, yeah, I guess that can happen, even though the likelihood is less, you can still have it happen. But I was like, no, that's impossible, you know? So trying to like keep it all perspective that it's not, you know. It's not the only risk factor involved. Like my, whenever I read all the literature around the like, oh yeah, breastfeeding reduces the risk of atomic, atopic dermatitis. And I'm like, sure, I breastfed my kids and they still had eczema because they're still my kids and we right. have a lot in our family. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. All right, well, thanks, Karen. It was really great talking to you and um, we'll meet up again in the near future. Sounds good. Have a great all day. Right. Bye. You too. Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week, our Little Green Book of Breastfeeding Management for Physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.